Welcome to the Shilling Toastmasters podcast. We come to you weekly from Shilling Speakers Toastmasters Club, an online club with global membership in District 91 in the UK. Welcome to this week's edition of the Shilling Toastmasters podcast. Today it's me, Pat Caslin, and it's me, Philippa Gray. So hello, Pat. How are you, Philippa? What have you been thinking about this week, Philippa? Right, I've had quite a lot of thoughts about the fact that I've got a cold and flu and COVID all at the same time, as far as I can tell. But I'm sure you won't want to listen to my moaning. So straight on, I think I caught all whatever bug I've got from Manchester. I had a couple of days up there. It's the first time I've visited the city and I found it quite overwhelming. I do recommend it. It's an amazing Victorian industrial city Lots of beautifully preserved Victorian buildings and lots of modern architecture scattered in amongst them. I found it a bit overwhelming at times, especially as it's the first time I've explored a really big city since COVID. And I think I'm out of practice. But anyway, that was one big thought. Second big thought came this afternoon when I was thinking, what big thoughts have I had this week? I suddenly came across the expression obsessional rumination. I thought, what? dived for Google and found out it's constantly thinking and rethinking the same pattern of thoughts. And uh, the context in which I saw it is a problem of old age. But quite honestly, I've done that all my life and I rather assume everybody else has. And uh, I think I've probably come up with a couple of techniques for uh, avoiding it. So one is do a puzzle and the other one is try and write a speech about it. You don't have to tell anyone you've written this, you don't ever have to deliver it, but anything you can do to get ideas down on paper or just get them straight in your head and it's going to help you help you think in a much more happy frame of mind. So, Pat, that was my thoughts. For well, maybe on the topic of obsessional rumination, that reflects one that has been going through my mind, particularly in the last couple of months. And it's a group of questions that I tend to ask people when I'm doing some coaching particularly when they get to a big decision, a really big decision. And I had picked them up four or five years ago uh, in the Harvard Business Review uh, from a man called Joseph Badaracco, who is, I understand, a professor of ethics. But the five questions go like this, and they're worth remembering. What are the net-net consequences of all my options? To whom do I owe my obligations? What will work in the world as it is? Who am I? What can I live with? And if you ask yourself those questions when you're about to make a big decision, a really big decision, a life-altering decision potentially, or a decision for your business or a decision for your family that has a lot of consequences riding on it, I think you'll find if you face up to the truth, particularly the truth of what will work in the world as it is, and the truth of what you can live with and who you are, that you will find that you will get some great answers or some great guidance from those questions. So five questions that you should think about asking yourself before you make any big decision. I'll give them to you again. What are the net-net consequences of all my options? To whom do I owe my obligations? What will work in the world as it is? Who am I and what can I live with? It's interesting because in one conversation I had with somebody recently and who was away subsequently on holidays with somebody that I didn't know And I was sitting beside that other person that I didn't know at a dinner. And they said to me, tell me those questions. The person that I had asked them of had obviously been talking about them. And it's really nice sometimes when sometimes when things come back like that and you 
hear them reflected back to you, you know that you've found or touched on something that is important that people will repeat or that people will tell others about. But these are things that I think you should remember and ask yourself when you're making big decisions. That's my big thought this week. Thank you, Pat. That's uh, really useful advice. And I've remembered that one of my other thoughts this week was having struggled with my to-do list for years, trying to get on top of it, I have never seen any evidence whatsoever that the length of my to-do list has any impact on the outside world. I think I can probably throw it away and nobody will notice. Yeah, perhaps I should do that. Well, it's worth trying. The question is, will it occupy your mind even more if it's not on paper? And to-do lists are, I think they're insidious things because once you've got a big to-do list, it completely absorbs your brain and it detracts you from concentrating on the things that you want to do. Unless you say, take it off your to-do list, put it in your diary, block out time for it and do it. But that's easier said than done. And I might preach about it, but I'm not sure that I do do it all the time. But there you go. There's our big thoughts for this week, listeners. That's the end of part one of this week's edition of the Shilling Toastmasters podcast. Welcome to part two of the Shilling Toastmasters podcast. In this part, we have an interview. And today, Paula Mahoney, who has joined us, has a guest. Paul, who are you interviewing today? Today, I have with me Roger Cook, a distinguished Toastmaster member of Schilling Speakers Club and last year, the Vice President for Membership in Schilling Club. Roger, very welcome to the show. Were you a founder member of Schilling Speakers? Hello, Paul. Uh, no, I was not a founding member of the club. I came in about six months, I believe, after the club had formed. Oh, lovely. Well, I'd like to find out a little bit more about that. But first of all, can, you've come you've come onto this podcast at short notice today. I mean, really, you, you're wonderful to have done it. Tell me, why did you accept the invitation from from Philippa? Why did you? What what got what got you to say yes? Well, it was either that or go out and help my wife water the yard. So I'd rather be on the I'd be, rather be on a Zoom call than be out in the yard watering plants. Are you a gardener, or is no, your wife a gardener? No. No, my wife is an extremely good gardener, and that's she lives most of her life in the yard during the day. She's out there doing something. If it was up to me, I'd pave the whole place with concrete and paint it green. So you'd prefer be talking about Toastmasters and talking with Toastmasters than doing gardening? Absolutely, Paul. I, I find Toastmasters fascinating, exciting, and it's a challenge every week to be involved with either one of the clubs that I belong to. So did you join Toastmasters just about uh, six months ago, or when did you first join Toastmasters? It was April 7th of 2007 is when I joined my club, my home club here in the United States called Wallmasters International. I joined the club because I was unemployed at the time, and I was going to a, a weekly meeting on Fridays at a public library this gentleman, who's a good friend of mine named Cleon Cox, holds or did hold meetings for people that were in a job search. Oh, and job search. Yeah. And did you yeah. think you needed to improve your communication skills in order to get a job? Pretty much. That's what he told me. And, and he, at these meetings, he would always segue Toastmasters into the conversation somewhere during the, the two hours we would be there. 
And he's a, he's a distinguished Toastmaster. He's been a Toastmaster well over 20 years. And he said to me, kept saying, Roger, you, you got to come and, and come to my club just once. Just come and visit once. I told him I belonged to a corporate club very shortly at my former employer, and I didn't like it one bit. I was, being, I was told I had to be there every Friday at noon for Toastmasters where I, where I worked. And I didn't like being told what I had to do on my own time. So I didn't like it. So I finally, Cleon kept telling me, come on, just come for one time, please. Just come. I, I won't tell, ask you again. So I went on a Friday morning. They met, they meet at 6.35 on a Friday. And I never stopped going. But your first experience of Toastmasters was when you were a, an employee and your employer told you you have to join Toastmasters, yes? Yes, that's correct. It was a corporate club formed by a couple of people at the company that were Toastmasters, and they're still good friends. I, I know them quite well because I always run into them at one of the conferences or something. But at that time, I was not excited about being told I had to be a Toastmaster. It just, I just didn't want to do it. And I actually I had to make my understudy, the guy that was working for me, I made him go to the meetings on my behalf because I didn't want to be there. So it was, was it strong encouragement or was it mandatory for you to go to Toastmasters in the first place? No, at the company club, it was mandatory. The owner of the company says all salespeople will go to Toastmasters every Friday. They'll supply the lunch. Of course, they did give us sandwiches, but I was not at all enthused about being told on my, by my time, my noon hour, that I had to go to Toastmasters. Did it do you any good at all? Did you develop any communication skill you didn't have already? No, I went about two or three meetings and I didn't go again. Right. Just, I, just, I, had a, I had a block, a mind block against it. But once I went to the community club, uh, Wallmasters International, my friend, like I said, got me to come. And I just loved what I saw. I felt, I felt welcome. I felt like I had a family, a new family. And when you're unemployed, you... You lose your family when you lose your job. So you go to work for eight hours a day, for example, and that's your family, right? And when you get put out, you're all of a sudden, you find yourself without a family. Well, Toastmasters became my family. Did it help you to get a job? Absolutely. God, tell us how it helped you. What did you get better at in order to get the job? Well, number one, my friend Cleon knows about 66% of the people in Portland. <laughs> He's well-networked. He believes highly in networking. And if you sit long enough and talk to him and he asks you questions, at some point in time, he's going to say, do you know such and such? Do you know this person? I go, he'll go, no. Well, let me make an introduction. They don't have a job for you, but they may know somebody that does. Perhaps you can do some more networking. The big thing was to learn how to network properly, go to different functions, get out, with, talk to people. You're not going to find a job on a computer. You've got to get out and socialize. And Toastmaster is a great way to do that. It gets your confidence going. So you can sit down at an interview, right? And a future employer is going to ask you questions, and you've got to be able to answer them promptly. If you're confident and you speak good English or whatever language it is, uh, that's, that's the key. That's the key is how well you're communicating. And you're showing that you have some leadership skills as well, right? Being a club officer gives you great skills in how to run an effective meeting. And when you put Toastmasters on a resume as something that you do, a lot of employers recognize the value of that. And it gives you a foot up on everybody else. Did it take you long to get another job then, Roger? I was out of work about, I'm going to say, about six months total. And in that six months, 
you went to what? Ten Toastmasters meetings? Oh, I would. The club I belong to, I didn't miss a Friday, like I say. So it, during those six months, you go twenty-four meetings. <laughs> and did you can't become an officer in that club by any chance? I am a past president. I had several roles. I was a vice president of, of membership. I have been I've been the sergeant of arms for the club for about seven years. I've done every, every role except for the VP of E, the vice president of education. I've not done that role. Just and don't have any interest in. Do you intend to do that role? No. No. Is there a good reason why you're avoiding it? Oh, my, I have ADD. I, and if I was trying to put all that together and hurt cats like that, no way. I, I, would, I would just make a mess of it. So I, I best leave it alone. Well, maybe. Now, look, to pick your thing, you, you said you gained confidence in Toastmasters. Supposing I say to you, Roger, look, you'll be supported. You'll gain confidence. You could be a great vice president for education with support. Would you go for it? Uh, no. <laughs> okay. No. I, I've, I've done that work. I've helped people in that role. I just, it's not something I want to do, but I help people if I can. It's you had all those years of experience in the United States, in a community club over there, and... Did you join any other clubs in the United States? I helped form a couple of clubs. I actually was at the district level. I was what's called the uh, club extension chair. So I helped the, the person, the, the trio we call them, the person that was involved in getting new clubs started. So what I would do is go out and qualify leads that were given to us. So I gave that person more time to do what they had to do. So I would call upon either the community a person that was interested in starting a community club or corporations that wanted to start a, a corporate club. And I would talk to people, qualify them. Many times there was really nothing there. There was, wasn't really an interest. Uh, somebody just wanted to get, get in the door somehow with, you know, it, it just, sometimes it doesn't work out. So I was the one doing that. I've done that for, I haven't done it in about two years, but I did that for about five years. So every new, new person that came in, club growth director, I would help them with that that uh, position did that give you experience of doing cold calling oh yeah <laughs> you have to like the word no and i i've been i've been a salesperson i was a salesperson up to my retirement in 2015 and i had to really know how to accept the, the word no and a good salesperson just moves on you don't dwell upon it it's nothing personal when you're in sales it's just the person you didn't tell them what they needed to know or you didn't write the ask the right questions of the customer. And that's really you know, key. You know, most people who join Coastmasters clubs that I have met do never think of setting up another club. Their their entire focus is on how can we keep our current club as healthy and as strong as it can be. What on earth got you interested in going outside your own club in order to set up other clubs? Well, one example is there's a club that meets on Monday evenings. And the gentleman who was starting that club, he needed to get that club started, get it chartered, and he would get his DTM by doing that. He was he was at the wire uh, getting his DTM. So I came in. I offered to be there as one of the regulars. And same with uh, several other people who were Toastmasters came in and helped him get this thing going. And at the end of the day, I had my wife join the club. She was the 21st member of that club. She's never been to a meeting, but I did... I had her join. I couldn't join, but she did. And we got them over the fence and they meet on Mondays and I frequently go and visit them and uh, have a good time. 
How many years has that club existed now? Uh, what was the deadline for the legacy program? I'm trying to remember. They've been around now about two years. It's been about two years ago. Great. So it's into its third year. That's that sounds like you. And then and then I one morning I was at our club meeting here, Wall Masters, on a Friday, and this individual shows up and we have a guest on Zoom, and she introduced herself to us, and she was there, uh, basically just visiting clubs all over the world. Her name's Antonia Harrison. And I was intrigued. She invited all of us to come and visit Shilling Speakers. And she wanted, you know, wanted to get more members into the club, et cetera, et cetera. So I came and visited. And guess what? I never stopped coming. Okay. Why didn't you stop coming? Tell me now. Look, we're on to oh, Shilling. It's so intriguing. The, the personalities, the, the people from all over the world in this club is, is phenomenal. And I, I've made new friends. I have another new family, right? And it's just, it's just... I find it fascinating. It's the different types of, you're hearing news stories from people from different countries and the international flavor really intrigued me. I worked for an international air carrier for many years. So I've been around a bit in the world. And to me, it was just something I had to do. I just love the club. Okay, now let me press you for a bit more detail. I can hear it in your voice. You love the club. It's terrific. It's great international flavor. But g give me the top three things in, in a little bit of detail that you that held you. You presumably came to a meeting. Something happened at that meeting. But why did you come back for a second meeting? Was it the love you experienced? Well, actually, when, a when Antonia visited us, she came back again and I was giving a speech and she's fascinated with model railroading. And she told me that. So she came back to listen to a speech I gave about model railroading. I'm very involved with that. So my hobby was, was getting, I was influenced my hobby on her. And then I finally came to the meeting and, and joined shortly after, after I came a few times. I, I just, the people, I, I'm just fascinated by the people. I love, like I said, hearing the stories. And I have a lot of stories to tell. And I'm doing the humorous path, pathway, and that has been a real challenge, as you may know. So I'm loving to uh, create better my humor. I'm trying to develop my humor to be better than it has been. And Are I you? have lots of speeches. I've done a lot of humorous speeches, but I really want to bring myself up to a different level when humorous speaking. And are you somebody who's been told by people, Roger, you need to be a bit, loosen up a bit and be a bit less serious? Oh, no. <laughs> you think I'm serious? No, I'm trying to work out why you chose the humorous path. I, I like humor. And I have, I mentored a fellow Toastmaster and he, he goes to comedy clubs frequently and, and performs at comedy clubs. So I was his mentor. and I found it very interesting how he has been able to develop his humor and grow. And he joined Toastmasters to help himself grow in his presentation skills. And it's a, he's an amazing young man. He's gone up, he's gotten up into the district level, helping district people in district. And he does speak, he speaks, uh, does, well, he does teaching at some of the conferences. He'll do, he'll teach a class, but his confidence level has gone up tremendously. And I feel that that's really important. Your confidence, communicating properly and the leadership opportunities are amazing. Well, I, did I, not take an I did not take an uh, a leadership role this year because I have other obligations and I don't want to discuss them at this this uh, venue. No, I want to I want to stick with the comedy for a minute because I know that in co in the comedy circles, there are plenty of opportunities to get up on an open mic 
and see if you can um, see if you can survive for a few minutes. Have you? Uh, uh, what about you now? Will you will you take your Toastmasters engaging humor uh, improvements in your humor and confidence and get on a comedy stage sometime soon? Oh, I would find a lot of fun. And and my friend, unfortunately, the fellow I was talking about, he's moved to Southern California, and we still communicate. But I would love to go because he has the contacts. So I probably will do that sometime in the future. Uh, ask him who I should talk to at these various clubs and see if I can get in there just to do a five-minute speech. Tell me, you are you the kind of guy who says, you know, I'd like to do that sometime in the future, and it means like in the next three years, or does it mean in the next six weeks? No, it'll probably be in the next six months. Great stuff. Will you? And will you tell us in Shilling Speakers, uh, the, the will you make a little speech in Shilling Speakers where you demonstrate a little bit of what you did at that on stage in the comedy club. Will you do that? Oh, absolutely. It'd be a great, uh, would be a great project. Yeah. That's great. Now, look, you took on this leadership role in Chilling. You clearly brought with you um, big uh, interest in membership and membership growth from your experience in your over in your district as a district extension or club extension chair. How have you found it last year um, leading the recruitment drive in the club? I found, that, well, for me, I thought it was a great challenge, number one. And it, I didn't have any really good experience. I did, I did for one year, was the vice president of membership at Wallmasters, but that was probably 12 years ago. And for, for me to take on that challenge, I, I had a call from the Shilling Speakers coach, and he he said, I just want to talk to you. And we, we got on a Zoom call and he says, Antonia needs help. She can't do everything herself. So would you be willing to take on some of whatever she's doing? Can you take on at least one of those roles to relieve her of that issue? And I said, I would certainly love to. And as you know, she's well networked in Postmasters. So she had a lot of great leads. So it was just following up, sending proper emails, messages, et cetera, and getting these people to come and visit and getting them to join. And for me, I, th I found it great. We get somebody that says yes instead of no. <laughs> so we, we got a lot of yeses this last year. And uh, I drug a couple people along. Uh, I drug Marv Surhan along. He was kicking and screaming, but he came in. And as you notice, he, he didn't stop coming and he's gotten quite involved. But it's, it's great to bring people in that bring value to the club. We have such great expertise. Even the newbies come in with amazing capabilities. Okay, now look, you've got you've you're you're a man of considerable expertise and considerable uh, communication skills. You've got a fine sense of humor to augment all of that. Give uh, uh, the listeners uh, three tips for how to become or how to be a great recruiter of new members now there you are there's the challenge there's the table topic what are the three things you can think of today that you should do if you want to recruit some new members always number one always be on the listen listen to people you're with family members friends etc uh, there's not a soul on my street that i don't talk to toastmasters about so always talk up Toastmasters. Listen to your neighbors, your friends, your family, and you'll get somebody that has a little bit of interest. Then invite them. Number two, invite them to come to a club meeting. 
experience what Toastmasters is about. And I can't think of a better place for somebody to come and visit than Ilya Shirley speakers or Wallmasters. My club, my home club, Wallmasters, is over 40 years old. And we, we pride ourselves in that. And the, and the third thing I, I believe that we need to do is also show them, demonstrate, have, invite them when you invite them to come. Perhaps you're the speaker, one of the speakers that day, so they can see you in action, right? So it brings a personal flavor to it. Mm -hmm. Now you're a you're a, you're a salesman, aren't you? You're you're a somebody who has a history of selling products, services, and ideas to other people. I think that's yes. true. Now, wh what what about closing the sale in a Toastmasters club? Somebody is coming along to meetings; they're enjoying it. How, what's uh, what's a good way to close the sale then, and to you know, get them to fill out the membership form and pay the money. That's the key. You have to ask for the sale. You've come a couple of times now, Paul. I think that you're ready to join the club. You'd be a great asset for us to have you come and join us. Here's the application. This is how much it's going to cost you to join. Where could you go? Where are you going to get this kind of education for the, such little money? Many people term being a Toastmasters, if you can get your DTM, that's like getting a master's degree. Okay. And for the price point, it's pretty dang cheap for a master's degree. Now, when you were the uh, vice president for membership, you've just given me a script, I think. Now, you, you were last year's vice president for membership. How about, would you ever consider transforming that script you've just called out to me off the top of your head, put it on paper and give it to other vice presidents for membership? Certainly. Well, you know, it's as you know, in Toastmasters, you, it's entirely up to the individual what they want to put forward. But I certainly was hugely taken by you saying that because uh, I, I'd like to be good at the, the ask, the knowing when the time is right and how to overcome the obstacles or how to you know, neutralize the reservations that somebody might have. Yes, you you must in in the position of vice president membership. You have to be constantly selling. People like to buy; they don't like to be sold, right? So you have to get them really excited about coming to the meetings. They see the value of what they're going to learn. It's going to take them to newer levels and their their own personal growth. And if they're unemployed, uh, they're crazy if they don't join because again, with the experience they're going to get out of Toastmasters their confidence will be up there. And when they go to interviews or whatever it is, out mingling and doing networking, they'll be seen as somebody that's eager, wanting to learn and move forward. You know, last thing about Toastmasters for one second. When you joined Toastmasters, you found that people liked you. You found that you liked the people. In, in order to like somebody, I think you have to find out something about them. Gradually. So we'll have members in, in Shilling Speakers who know a certain amount of things about you. Certainly they know your accent. Certainly they know where you come from. They'll have heard you make some speeches. They'll have maybe had some emails from you and everything. And they, they'll know a certain amount about you. How about you? We finish this interview with you uh, telling us a couple of things about yourself that you don't think anyone yet knows about you okay so let's just go to the district level i have been conference chair for three various three conferences at the district level 
I work with two brilliant people, two ladies that are just the greatest people to work for. And I was able to put all three conferences together. The fourth conference I was involved with, COVID came along and we had to shut down the conference. I had to cancel everything. I had all, I had to, everything was set up and everything had to be canceled. I was scrambling to find another venue because the venue we were going to use was a college and they were shut down. Well, at the end of the day, we just, we just canceled the conference. There was just no way to do an in-person conference with COVID. So I was diligent trying to get that put together. And I enjoyed that at the, at the district level. I already mentioned about my extension, being the club extension chair for many years. At the club level, I, I mentioned that I had been a president. I was very proud of being the president of the club. It was, it was quite a challenge. Being the president of a club is not necessarily you doing all the work. You have to have a team and your team does the work. You just make sure they do it, right? Outside of Toastmasters, I've been married 51 years to my lovely wife. We just celebrated our, here about a week ago, our 51st anniversary. And she's a magical person in my life. I met her in college and I, that's the only thing I ever got out of college was a wife. <laughs> And she's, she's my right hand, and uh, I love her dearly. We have two beautiful daughters, and they have their families. And I, I've got four grandchildren I'm really proud of. And actually, I have a new grandchild because my oldest grandson, my, no, not my oldest grandson. My, yes, my oldest grandson got married here about a month ago. And so we have another, we have a new granddaughter in our family. So I'm uh, really into my family, into my home. We love our home where we live here in Oregon. And what else would you like to know? I well, mentioned, I, I think I told you I'm into model railroading. That's something I love to do. I go to, I go to private, private model railroads here in the area. And these gentlemen have huge model railways. And it takes about, normally about 15 to 20 guys to run the railroad. So we have operation sessions and it's a very socialized event. And guess what I talk about there sometimes? I talk about Toastmasters. Roger Cook, you're a, you're a gem. You're such a distinguished Toastmaster. I am thrilled to be a member of the same club as you. Well, I am, I'm so proud to, to know you guys. Uh, it's, it's been a pleasure. And again, thank you for inviting me today. And it fit in well with my day. Well, great. Thank you ever so much, Roger. And thank you all for listening to Roger Cook, all the way from the United States, from the state of Oregon, who is a very important member of Schilling Speakers Toastmasters Club. Thank you very, very much, Roger. Thank you, Paul. Welcome to part three of the Schilling Toastmasters podcast. This week, listeners, we have Pat Caslin climbing on the soapbox. So over to you, Pat. Thank you, Philippa. Education is something that I've long been interested in, particularly after my middle child, my daughter who's now 26, left school about seven or eight years ago, and said to me after she had done the state examination, the what in Ireland call a leaving cert, some of you will be familiar with that. It is a set examination. All students at the end of their secondary school education sit this exam and it forms the basis for assessing the grades that will be required for getting into college. It generally delivers a set of points, and those points are evaluated nationally, and supply and demand dictates college in different college courses and what points are going to be required to get into them. So it's an important exam, or it's set up to be an important exam. But does it educate? 
or does the system that leads up to that educate? And the argument that I get all the time from people that argued the benefit of the Leaving Cert as an examination, as a standardized test, is that it's the same for everybody. Yeah, great, it is the same for everybody, but is it educating them? Definitely, it's causing them a lot of stress. It's causing them to do an awful lot of hard work. And any employers that I've ever talked to say that people with good Leaving Cert points, we know that they can work. Yes, they can work, but is that the only qualification that they have at the end of six or 12 years in school or 14 years in school from four to 18 that we know that they can work? Do they actually understand anything? Do they, are they capable of reasoning and arguing and thinking properly? Are they curious? Are they interested in what they're doing? All of these things are really important. And that takes me back then to say, to look at the whole idea of standardized testing. I'm not sure that standardized testing is any way to test students' understanding of the material, to give them any autonomy, to give them any sense of control over what they do or what they're interested in or how they pursue it. Rather, the education system in most Western democracies, with a small exception, is based on regurgitating information. Learn and regurgitate. The test is a hurdle that needs to be jumped. It's not a feedback loop. And I had done a course about a long time ago in an online course in which the test, you got 15 goes to do the tests every week because there were weekly tests. And the idea of the 15 goes to do the tests was that this was the test as a feedback loop because if you were interested enough and curious about why your knowledge was not at a level that you expected to be, you went back and you looked at the material and you took the test again and you kept taking the test until you had filled in the gaps in your knowledge to the point at which you were able to master the subject at a certain level. You were by no means expert, but you mastered it at that level. And to that extent, this was a great way of educating. And it opened my mind in terms of what the test should be or how the test should be. And we talk about maximizing student engagement. And this is a blog I've been reading by a man called Alfie Cohn, who is K-O-H-N, who's a, a blogger on education and particularly the deficiencies in our education system. And particularly in the US is the the economy that he's most familiar with. But it applies here in Ireland as well. And I believe it also applies in the UK. The, the idea that we're trying to maximize student engagement, it's a wonderful idea. But the reality is, what does it mean for a student to be engaged? It doesn't mean that they're engaged in doing the work, filling out the worksheets, listening to the lectures, slogging through the textbooks, regurgitating information on tests. That isn't really engaged, that's compliant. It's doing what's needed to pass the exam because that is something that they need to pass if they're going to get into another, in most uh, universities, as I understand, bar the perhaps the best, uh, another learn off and slog and regurgitate uh, situation in an awful lot of them anyway. But engagement should be about valuing deep thinking, honoring students' experiences of school, and giving them a model in which they have some input and some agency over the things that they study so that they're studying things that are going to be valuable and interesting to them and that they can pursue during their life. So the idea 
that you, you can have students really engaged in a lecture to the extent that they're deeply interested in what the lecturer is talking about. They're engaged in the discussion and activity. They're asking questions. But if it doesn't reflect a deep sense of curiosity, is it really engaging them in a way that we originally considered engagement to be? If an engagement with a topic is to impress the teacher or outshine your classmates or score well on a standardized test, that's not really engagement in the sense of stimulating mental activity, interest in a topic, curiosity, the kind of thing that is going to get you through life because curiosity is an enormously important quality to be able to exercise, the ability to ask questions, to put, to value the question more than the answer because the curious student is the one that will ask the question and then will pursue the subject until they get an answer to that question. And this is what education should be. It should be about stimulating curiosity. So small, small children ask between the age of two and five, ask 50,000 questions because they're curious. But when they get to age 18, when they leave school, secondary school, that curiosity has been all but dehydrated to sacrificed on the altar of standardized testing and the need to get into college because that is what we measure our kids by, or we seem to measure our kids by, and a lot of schools measure them by. So I'm concerned about the kind of education that we're giving, or that what we call education uh, and what we're giving our students, uh, our school students. I'm not sure that we're educating them. We're teaching them how to take stress and work hard. And that is not necessarily good for them it's not necessarily opening their minds. It's not necessarily getting them to a better understanding of the nature of society and how they participate in it and what those institutions are, for example. It's not in getting them involved in things like history and understanding their culture and their background, understanding philosophy, the ancient wisdoms, and why we are as we are as a people. And we're sacrificing so much of that on the altar of standardization and not a standardization that actually gives any learning. So go back to my daughter when I said to her, now what you need to do after you get the exam results is go and look at all your papers and see where you made the mistakes. And then you'll know when you go to college how you should approach doing tests. And she looked at me with the, the greatest aghast look and said, dad, are you mad? I'll never have to know most of the stuff that I did for my leaving cert. I leave that with you as a thought for the 18-year-old who's just passed the um, finished school. I'll never need to know most of what I learned for the Leaving Cert. Back to you, Philippa. Thank you, Pat. Yes, that is indeed worth thinking about. Got me wondering what I remember of my... Uh, well, we, did, we do A-levels in the UK. That's the exam you take at 18. And um, yes, I think there's bits that I used, but I'm always far more aware of what I didn't learn at that age and what I could have learned and what it would have been useful for me to learn. Thank you, Pat, for uh, your soapbox. Very well, interesting. And I say food for thought. Well, I think maybe one test, and I probably should have mentioned this as I went through one test is if you ask competent adults to sit the standardized test, I guarantee you most of them would fail. And the reason they would fail is not because they are not capable. They don't need to know it. We're teaching them things that they don't need to know. I rest.
Thank you. That's it for today from the Shilling Toastmasters podcast. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe and share with your friends.